tweetus. Hmm. But not with not with um like inbox spam to our Twitter like we got yesterday. Did you see that? From some prostitute? Yes. To two gay podcasters who talk about films. <laughs> yes. Welcome to Celluloid Junkies. This month we're in Little Italy and we're going to yell passionately about all things share and love and freshly baked bread as we discuss Norman Jewison's 1987 romantic comedy, Moonstruck. The moon is a little like love. Will you marry me? I will marry you. I will be your wife. You love them, Loretta? No. Good. When you love them, they drive you crazy. Sometimes. Why are you marrying Johnny? He's a fool. It makes you act a little crazy. Where are you taking me? To the bed. Oh, God. Okay, I don't care. I don't care. Take me. Take me to the bed. Isn't it romantic? You get a love bite on your neck. Your life's going down the toilet. You'll have your eyes open for you, my friend. I have my eyes open. I'll say no more. You haven't said anything. Ah, que bella ruined my life. That's impossible. You ruined my life. Look, it's Cosmo's moon. Why do men chase women? Nerves. I don't want to talk about it. That moon. That crazy moon. Now you talk. I love you. What? Snap out of it. I'm confused. They say there's nothing new under the sun. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <clears throat> but under the moon... That's another story. You love him, Loretta? Ma, I love him awful. Oh, God, that's too bad. Cher, Nicolas Cage, in a Norman Jewison film. A la familia, eh? A la familia! Moonstruck. If 1987 belonged to any one person in the entertainment industry, it surely belonged to Cher. The singer-turned-actress was at the peak of her artistic and commercial success, with two films released in the year's final months and a new album as well, her first in five years. But Cher had always been a headliner, be it on sold-out musical tours or in the tabloids, where she was a permanent fixture thanks to a never-ending array of high-profile relationships and her no-holds-barred attitude. Cher had acted in some films with partner Sonny Bono in the 1960s, low-budget productions like Wild on the Beach and Good Times, and she had taken the lead in Chastity, a film produced for her as a starring vehicle that bombed at the box office and saw the couple in over their heads with the federal government owing more than a quarter of a million dollars in unpaid taxes. She didn't return to the big screen until Robert Altman's 1982 comedy drama Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, a well-reviewed, mildly successful film in which Cher earned some plaudits. The following year, she was in Mike Nichols' drama Silkwood, based on the real life of Karen Silkwood, a nuclear whistleblower who died in a car crash while investigating wrongdoing at the nuclear plant at which she worked. Silkwood was a major departure for Cher, being her first out-and-out dramatic role. She played the lesbian Dolly Pelliker, co-worker and housemate to Meryl Streep's Karen Silkwood, and would earn an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. She lost to Linda Hunt in The Year of Living Dangerously. She went one further at the Golden Globes though, winning that same award. Cher's film career was now in full swing, and she would next tackle the role of a down-to-earth biker nicknamed Rusty, the mother of a young boy with craniodiaphyseal dysplasia, an extremely rare disease which causes disfiguring enlargements to the skull, in the Peter Bogdanovich film Mask. She received almost universal acclaim in her role, earning a Golden Globe nomination this time as Best Actress and winning that same award at the Cannes Film Festival. The Academy had different ideas though, and failed to nominate her. She responded in her own unique style, showing up to present the award for Best Supporting Actor that year to the 77-year-old Donna Michi, wearing one of the most outrageous dresses ever seen at the ceremony a midriff-bearing gothic black sequined gown with a towering feather headdress that almost wouldn't have been out of place at an upper-class BDSM soiree. 
I had the idea mostly because the Academy didn't really like me, Cher said. They hated the way that I dressed and that I had, had young boyfriends, so they thought I wasn't serious. So I came out and said, as you can see, I got my handbook from the Academy on how to dress like a serious actress. The lack of acclaim from the Academy for Mask hit Cher hard. She had stated many times in interviews that she longed to be thought of as a serious actress, but unfortunately found it difficult to compete against stars like Streep, Sally Field and Diane Keaton for dramatic roles. The Washington Post called her missing a nomination a snub, and the Chicago Tribune in their original review of the film said a second Oscar nomination seems assured. A year after lighting up the Oscars with her breathtaking ensemble, Cher starred in three films. First came The Witches of Eastwick in June, a comedy directed by George Miller and starring Jack Nicholson alongside Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer. It would grow $63 million at the box office, triple its budget, in the first of what would be three financial successes. Suspect, which followed in October, was not one of those. The film, directed by P.D. Yates, best known for 1968's Bullet, starring Steve McQueen, was a commercial failure. Starring Cher as a public defender who is assigned the case of a deaf, homeless Vietnam veteran accused of murder, the screenplay veers off into an inadvertently comical ending that, for some reason, I still love to this day. Her second financial success for the year was, in fact, her first album in five years, a self-titled record released two weeks after Suspect that spawned the top ten single I Found Someone and became her highest selling album to date. Second single We All Sleep Alone narrowly missed breaking into the top ten as well, but the album was certified platinum by Billboard and led to a major revival in her otherwise stagnant musical career. Her third success was, of course, Moonstruck. The screenplay for Moonstruck began when John Patrick Shanley sat down with Sally Field and agreed to write a part for her. Meeting at the Russian Tea Room in 1986, Field said that she had read the script for Shanley's upcoming crime drama Five Corners and liked what he'd done. He set off to write her a script on spec, which means without any guarantee of money, as he liked to own his work and ensure that, if produced, it was given the treatment it deserved. Shanley drew upon his own 10-year marriage and ensuing divorce as inspiration for the screenplay, inserting both autobiographical and observed elements into various characters, along with the usual artistic fiction. Shanley, who had grown up in the East Bronx, had good knowledge of New York and its inhabitants and wrote to his strengths. He also came from an Irish family, known for their hot-headed nature and lively philosophical debates. He was educated by the Irish Christian Brothers, went to NYU and began a degree before dropping out and joining the Marines. He eventually returned to NYU and completed a Masters in Educational Theatre. From there, he wrote for the stage, including off-Broadway productions such as Danny and the Deep Blue Sea and Women of Manhattan, before tackling a screenplay. But the character he wrote for Sally Field, he soon found out, was easier imagined for her on the page than it would be visualised on screen. Shanley admits he was a little naive because I didn't realise how literal the movies are about a human face. Field nevertheless shopped the screenplay around with her as star, but there were no bites. Shanley eventually met with director Norman Jewison, who had expressed an interest in the screenplay. As was his MO, Shanley essentially interviewed Jewison for the right to direct his script, hoping to find that Jewison would realise the writer's vision. They clicked and Shanley determined that Jewison, quote, wasn't a lunatic, giving him the screenplay and adding in a clause that the studio for which Jewison produced it wouldn't be allowed to ask Shanley for rewrites. They eventually read the script together and agreed on every word before production began. As the New York Times said, Mr. Shanley wasn't unreasonable though. He had written seven dogs into the script. When the dog trainer insisted that seven dogs would be completely uncontrollable, he settled for five. Norman Jewison was a major name in Hollywood, but had probably done his most acclaimed work 20 years prior. He'd made some comedies at the start of his career, including two with Doris Day, before making The Cincinnati Kid to mix reviews starring Steve McQueen. The financial success of that film led to a bigger production, 1966's The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, a comedy that grossed over $20 million and was nominated for Best Picture. This allowed Jewison to branch out and do some more personal projects. In 1967, he made the bombshell film about race relations in America's South in the heat of the night. Sidney Poitier plays Virgil Tibbs, a police detective who is stranded south of the Mason-Dixon line in Mississippi and faces immediate racial profiling at the hands of a local police force who pin him as the obvious suspect for a murder that has recently occurred. He isn't guilty, of course, 
and later in the film slaps a white man in a position of power, the slap heard round the world. The film won Best Picture. He followed up a second successful Steve McQueen vehicle, The Thomas Crown Affair, with another Best Picture nominated film in 1971's Fiddler on the Roof, an adaptation of the Broadway musical. The film deals with life in a Jewish community prior to the Russian Revolution. Maybe it's because of his involvement in this project that Jewison is often mistaken as a Jew, even though he's a Canadian-born Protestant. Part of the reason he wanted to make historically significant artistic choices was due to his time in the Royal Canadian Navy during World War II, wherein he visited the American South and encountered racism and segregation. Two of Jewison's projects in the 1970s encountered protests, the first of which was an adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber Tim Rice musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Some Christians had previously said of the musical that Judas was portrayed as too sympathetic, the criticisms of Jesus were offensive, and the project itself was blasphemous. Jewison's film version wasn't immune to these attacks. The second controversy came with 1975's Rollerball, a science fiction film that was decried for its overt violence and branded with an R rating in the US and a restrictive AA rating in the UK. After being contacted for the rights to the sport portrayed in the film, a fictional one of course, Jewison stated that he was shocked people wanted to create real sporting leagues based on it as the movie was made to show the sickness and insanity of contact sports and their allure. In the 1980s he tackled even more serious subject matter, first with another look at racial segregation in 1984's The Soldier's Story, and the following year with Agnes of God, about a young nun who gives birth and murders her baby. With Sally Field out of the picture, Cher was brought in as the lead for Jewison's production of Shanley's screenplay. The cast was fleshed out with a plethora of extraordinary Italian and Italian-American actors and actresses, as well as rising star Nicolas Cage, most recently seen in his uncle Francis Ford Coppola's Peggy Sue Got Married and the Coen Brothers Raising Arizona. Others included Greek-American actress Olympia Dukakis and Brit John Mahoney, the latter of whom went on to further success in the 90s sitcom Frasier. Production on Moonstruck began with an $11.5 million budget in December of 1986. The cast and crew shot for five weeks in New York's Little Italy and Brooklyn's Cobble Hill, making sure to include several landmarks and many locals in the filming. People in New York are such natural actors that it was wonderful, said Jewison later. You know, everyone's an actor in New York. These are the kinds of things that a city like this offers that you just can't get anywhere else. Filming moved to Jewison's hometown of Toronto, Canada in late January of 1987, where many of the film's interiors were shot over the course of the next six weeks, ending on February 13th, coincidentally a Friday, and the night of a full moon, not that either bode badly for the film's success. They came in under budget at $10.7 million. The film opened on December 16th in New York, Los Angeles and Toronto, making it eligible for the upcoming Academy Awards show, before opening wide on January 15th, 1988. Finally, Cher got her true Oscars revenge. Winner is Cher in Moonstruck. Luke, do you love Moonstruck? Oh, I love it awful. When did you first see Moonstruck? I don't remember exactly the first time I, I saw it. I remember the first time I saw it, I didn't absorb how great it was. I thought, oh, that's nice. That's curious that that film was so well liked because nothing really happens in it. I think I was far more plot focused back then and probably didn't pick up like the intricacies of the dialogue because it's a very subtle genius to Moonstruck. And now I love it and, I, and my appreciation and love for it grows, I think, as I grow. Yeah, I think I was uh, very much the same. I think it was just a film that I must have caught at some point and thought that's good fun. Of course, I loved Cher. Can I just ask you, do you find it strange that as a gay man, when you first met me, that I was as distanced from Cher and Madonna as I was then and still am? Not really, because I feel like until recently when you've developed this really bizarre fixation on Taylor Swift, you've always had a kind of highbrow taste. It's only recently that you've allowed yourself to bathe in the muck, shall we say. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So wait a, <laughs> wait a minute, you don't think that Cher and Madonna are great artists? No, no, I do, but there's certainly something uh, a little bit campy, a little bit filthy about them, which I think is part of the reason gay men are so drawn to those people because somebody who can express their sexuality as a woman so freely, so openly is always something that gay men are drawn to. 
the appeal of Moonstruck, as I said, is hard to describe. There's like a contrast between the film's cadence and rhythm and its characters who are all sort of downbeat. And they have a lot of morbid ideas and conversations throughout the whole film. But the film itself kind of bounces and feels very frothy, even though all of these people in this community are kind of very dark and sometimes even morose. That lends itself to this screenplay because it's not just an out-and-out romantic comedy. It's grounded in reality as well. Nothing so remarkable happens in the film that it requires the explanation of the moon. Just a few kind of serendipitous coincidences and things like that. Really what Moonstruck is about is about human interactions and this family. And Shanley does a really good job at teasing what's funny or charming out of ordinariness. And just little quirks and rhythms and, you know, the phrasing is everything in Moonstruck. What we respond to is how these characters phrase their thoughts. Moonstruck in 1987 must have been like air freshener after the politics of Fatal Attraction. Here's a movie about a working woman who's closing in on 40 and isn't a hopeless case. And it promotes passion over domestic security. And it makes a joke out of casual sex. <laughs> yeah. Where are you taking me? To the bed. Oh, God. Okay, I don't care. I don't care. Take me, take me to the bed. What do you think of Nicolas Cage's line, I'm going to take you to the bed? Fucking love that line. Instead of, I'm going to take you to the bedroom. Isn't that interesting? I like the specificity of it. Yeah. <laughs> From the first time I saw it, I always thought it was a very intelligent and adult film. Over the years, I've kind of drawn comparisons between this screenplay and with Woody Allen, which I've talked to you about before. Woody Allen characters are usually very different than these characters. Uh, They're often neurotic and self-effacing, and also they sabotage their own relationships. But there's something about the wit and intelligence in this screenplay that you don't find in a lot of romantic comedies, and especially you don't find them in the romantic comedies that were coming out a decade after this, and in the last 15, 20 years as well. To be moonstruck is defined as to be affected by the moon and become mentally unbalanced, romantically sentimental, or lost in fantasy or reverie, unable to think or act normally, especially as a result of being in love. In the movie, there's essentially two major romantic relationships in the film. There's three, I guess, major relationships in the film. So Loretta and Johnny is the least romantic of them. Loretta and Ronnie is uh, obviously the centre, the focus of this movie. And there's Rose and Cosmo as well. So that's uh, Loretta's parents. There's a series of rendezvous, which is how Loretta and Ronnie begin, and that also includes Cosmo and Mona, as you've mentioned, and uh, Rose and John Mahoney's Perry. So these are also really important in shaping the narrative, but they're not the film's focus. And on the sidelines, there's then Rose's brother Raymond and his wife Rita. So there's a whole bunch of relationships, and you could also put in there that there's Johnny and his mother. Yes, (laughs) which is a pivotal relationship, as it turns out. Loretta is portrayed as a bit of a dowdy accountant slash bookkeeper at the start of the film, and this profession is typically associated with risk aversion or comfort. That old adage of a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And we immediately wonder because of that if she's settled when it comes to Johnny. She even has to force him to propose properly, and their interactions are obviously quite laboured. Uh, we will both have the uh, tachino salad, and uh, I'll have special fish. No, you don't want the fish. No? It's the oily fish tonight, not before the plane ride. Well, maybe you're right. Okay, Bobo, we'll have the medicot, Bobo. See, Miss Loretta. That'll give you a base for your stomach. You know, you eat that oily fish, you go up in the air, halfway to Sicily, you'll be green and your hands will be sweating. You look after me. But she's 37 and she's getting married again. Her first marriage was cursed, as we know. She's a widow because her husband was hit by a bus because her father didn't pay for the wedding and she wasn't married in a church. William Day's essay Moonstruck, or How to Ruin Everything, he wrote that Johnny satisfies Loretta's half-conscious wish to put her sexual desire to sleep. That relationship is definitely a comfort, but I almost feel like to put her sexual desire to sleep means that she had some kind of sexual desire before, and I don't really get that from Loretta at the first part of this movie. Where is the sexual desire that she had? It could be that she's hoping that by being with Johnny, it will eventually put it completely to sleep. Like, you know, it's kind of on its way out because she's sort of not had passionate 
romance for, what, two years? I think it's been since her husband died. And presumably she's not really been with anybody since then. It could taper off <laughs> if she marries Johnny and just kind of cuts temptation away. Well, he's definitely the right person to do that. Because in this movie, he's portrayed as this, like, sobbing mama's boy with no idea about how to romance anybody. Danny Aiello, I don't know, he plays him really kindly. I have this huge sympathy for Johnny. Yeah, he's a lovable buffoon. You can see that he means well. He's got very warm eyes. He is meant to be a fool, and he is. Because he's so warm, it's not cruel. There's this reaction from uh, Loretta's parents when she says that she's marrying Johnny. I'm getting married. Again? Yeah. You did this what before it didn't work out? But the guy died. And what killed him? He got hit by a bus. No. Bad luck. Your mother and I were married 52 years. Nobody died. You were married, what, two years? Somebody's dead. Don't get married again, Loretta. It don't work out for you. Cosmo doesn't want to pay for the wedding again because he doesn't like Johnny. And as you said, Rose is just glad that Loretta isn't in love. And she asks her the question, do you love him? Loretta's getting married. Again? Yeah. Johnny Camareri. I don't like him. You're not going to marry him, Cosmo. Do you love him, Loretta? No. Good. When you love them, they drive you crazy because they know they can. And then along comes Ronnie, who instantly embodies the opposite of Johnny, the fire and the passion that Johnny so obviously lacks. And of course, there's this estranged relationship, and that's that kind of hot headed nature that I was talking about before. They haven't spoken to each other, Johnny and Ronnie, in many years because of what Ronnie perceives as a slight which is an utterly ridiculous slight, but quite comedic in the movie. And it allows Nicolas Cage to give just such a, an amazing performance in this scene. And it reminds me when I watch scenes like this that he's in, why I think Nicolas Cage has the capacity to be a brilliant actor. Do you agree? He's great in this movie. He's absolutely great. I mean, lately I've seen a couple of things he's done and it, it almost feels like he's lost his talent. But I don't think he has lost his talent. I just don't think they're writing Nick Cage roles anymore. And they're trying to kind of mainstream him and it doesn't work because he has this kind of tortured, zany quality. Raising Arizona, which came out this same year, I'm not sure if you've seen that one, but he's got that kind of same zany, tortured character in Raising Arizona. Yeah, when he's great, he's amazingly great. I would say... It's exactly the same as Michael Keaton. If you put Michael Keaton in a role where the character is supposed to be sorted out, then it doesn't read as real. That's the bad blood between you and Johnny? Yes, that's it. Yeah, but I, that's not Johnny's fault. I don't care! I ain't no freaking monument to justice! I lost my hand! I lost my bride! Johnny has his hand! Johnny has his bride! You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away and forget? Nick Cage in this movie really is sort of Romeo if Romeo grew up in the Bronx. <laughs> yeah. And everything about him is sort of there so that Cher can bounce off of it. He, he almost feels a little unreal to me while I watch the film in a way that Cher doesn't. Um, do you find him sexually appealing in this movie? Mmm. <laughs> yeah, I know. I get you. In the whole, bring me the big knife scene. <laughs> oh. He's oh, wearing let's, that let's... like dirty tank top while he's like, you know, doing the bread Covered all day. in flour. <laughs> Hello, Christmas. Let's talk about that scene because that's like my favourite quote in this movie where he says, Chrissy, bring me the big knife. I tell you, I won't do it. He tells the story to share about what's his slight with Johnny, which is that he uh, was distracted and his hand got cut off in the slicer. And so after that, his fiance left him and he says, I lost my hand. I lost my bride. And now Johnny has his hand. Johnny has his bride. This is the most tormented man I have ever known. I'm in love with this man, but he doesn't know that. Because I never told him, because he could never love anybody since he lost his hand and his girl. And that is just my favourite quote of this movie. There are so many, but that's my favourite. It's so absurd. Okay, well, this is my favourite quote. Look, there are three kinds of pipe. There's the kind of pipe you have, which is garbage. And you can see where that's gone, yeah. Then there's... Bronze, which is very good, unless something goes wrong. And something always goes wrong. And then there's copper, which is the only pipe I use. It costs money. It costs money because it saves money. 
That's a good line. I always forget about that scene. I fucking lost it. That was the biggest laugh that I got out of the movie this watch. That's in the uh, young couple's bathroom. And then like that he's repeating it in the next scene to impress Mona the Tart. <laughs> oh my God, it's all just so, so good. All of these lines, they feel like throwaway lines and absurd lines at times, but they're all used to elevate the characters. So this this line that I love in the bakery there, I mean, it's a silly line intended for laughs and that's what it gets, but it does also get across this lack of romance in Ronnie's life. And naturally then, I guess if you're taking it literally, this sets him up to later become Moonstruck. And it's the start of this relationship between Ronnie and Loretta, even though she's so hesitant to accept it at this point. After that scene, she takes him in and she cooks him a steak and tells him that he'll eat it bloody so that it feeds his blood. And then she diagnoses him. The woman was a trap for you. She caught you and you couldn't get away. So you you chewed off your own foot. That was the price you had to pay for your freedom. You know, Johnny had nothing to do with it. You did what you had to do between you and you. And now, now you're afraid because you know the big part of you is a wolf that has the courage to bite off its own hand to save itself from the trap of the wrong love. I want to talk about Rose and Cosmo and their relationship. It's a very dynamic portrayal of a relationship that has been going on for 50 years. I don't know how old they are in the movie, but you've got to imagine that they're encroaching on their 70s. Cosmo is dating another woman, Mona, which Rose obviously doesn't know about, but she has her suspicions. And so she's always on this uh, hunt for why men seek other women. The beautiful thing about this relationship for me is that it's so human. There isn't a big scene where Rose confronts him and there's no violent arguments between the two. They've kind of been married for too long and they're past that point. And so what happens instead is that he goes and listens to his Vicky Carr record and she says things like, now he's, now he's going to go and listen to that damn record and when he comes to bed he won't touch me. They kind of show you they mature about these things and there's certain things that you put up within a marriage and hope that they go away. You hope that they prove not to be true, uh, especially when you hit a certain age. And I think, I think that relationship is portrayed in a really beautiful way. I actually think that the relationship between Rose and Cosmo is so good that it borders on being frustrating that it's not the main story. And that Cher's story isn't shrunk down. Olympia Dukakis is phenomenal in it. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, go ahead. Why do men chase women? Nerves. I think it's because they fear death. She poses the question very early on about, is it because men fear death? Just before that, Loretta has spoken with her dad. And he gives two clues that that is the reason. The first thing he says is, I can't sleep anymore, it's too much like death. And then he has his great moment with Loretta where he's like, Everything is temporary! This is all this guy is thinking about. Is he's, he's hitting a point in his life where it's getting closer, he's getting scared, and he's trying to grab for things at the expense of the people that are most important to him and the people that have come, who have come through for him and who are getting older with him. And as is human nature in an extramarital affair, I mean, you get these joys and this immediate happiness that you don't necessarily get with somebody that you know so well and there's things that Cosmo especially who is such a stoic man there are things that Cosmo does with and for Mona that he hasn't done for Rose obviously hasn't done for Rose for such a long time you know my mother guessed that my father was seeing somebody that Mona I mean she's some piece of cheap goods who am I to talk what's the matter how can you ask me that You're making me feel guilty. You are guilty. I'm guilty. Of what? Only God can point the finger, Loretta. Yeah, well, I know what I know. So Loretta has, of course, undergone her transformation here, and she's no longer this dowdy accountant that began the movie, but this gorgeous woman who's presented herself differently for Ronnie than she ever did for Johnny. Sorry, can I just quickly say one of my favourite lines is when Ronnie says, mentions her hair, and she's like, oh, thanks, I had it done. So in this scene, obviously, Ronnie is now no longer the baker, but he is this well-dressed lover of the arts. And the first time you meet Ronnie, you wouldn't have thought that this was possible. The movie is uncovering their true selves at this point. This, This is the self that they have hidden behind pain and misfortune previously. So the pain of the slight, the losing the hand, losing his bride, and Loretta losing her husband. You look beautiful. 
Your hair. Yeah, I had it done. You look uh, beautiful too. Thank you. Ronnie is sort of weirdly contradictory because in that first scene, it's sort of like, my life is over. I lost my hand, I lost my chance at love, and now I am relegated to this dirty bread basement where I make loaves, and that is my future. Then he sleeps with Cher, and suddenly his life, you know, it's all open to him again. That's a good analogy that he's stuck in the basement. He's stuck in the dark, the hot, the sweaty mess. He even lives above the bakery. Yeah, and his big melodramatic proclamation of, uh, oh, you know, my life is over, is actually really thin and weak compared to Cher's very hardened, very instilled belief that her life is over. Because she's actually mm. marrying Johnny and voluntarily consenting to a sort of comatose life. While Loretta is out in the open with Ronnie, she doesn't really care who sees her. Cosmo is hiding. He doesn't want to be seen in this circumstance. And when he is seen, he makes a quick and very uncomfortable getaway. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Who's that guy? You're engaged. And you're married. You're my daughter. I won't have you act like a putana. And you're my father. All right. <laughs> so funny. What does he say to them? Like, we never met or this never happened. Something like that to Loretta. I didn't see you here. Rose, as always, is nothing but authentic, and it's kind of refreshing. The date with Perry, it feels platonic from the start for a variety of reasons. He's obviously interested in younger women, and she's seeking answers for why a man chases other women, and we'll get to that reason soon. But their interactions are really easy, which is something she no longer has with Cosmo. You're a little boy, and you like to be bad. I could go to my apartment. You see how the other half lives. I'm too old for you. I think the most wounding moment in the film is when he says to her, how old are you? Your lady friend has a personality disorder. It's just too young for you. Oh, thanks, comrade. Nothing. Too young? I just got that. You know how to hurt a guy, don't you? How old are you? None of your business. I'm sorry. I think she um, wounds him pretty deeply at the end of that as well, in her way, in her righteous kind of way. He keeps saying, it's freezing out here. You know, oh, I guess I can't come upstairs. No, why? Because I'm married. And he then says again, oh, it's freezing out here. <laughs> Clearly hoping for that invite. This date is a bit of a vindication for her. She's feeling a bit unwanted. Uh, and by the end of this date, she is wanted, even though it's by somebody who she doesn't necessarily have any interest in, and it's not something that she would have pursued anyway, even if she did meet somebody that she had an interest in. So really, the only person I think that comes out of this series of dates looking bad is Cosmo. But there's this funny sighting where Rose and Perry walk past Cosmo's father who is credited as the old man, I don't know if we ever get his name, who's out walking his five, not seven dogs. She explains to Johnny afterwards, he's got the wrong idea. And that's all she says. Rose doesn't refuse Perry on moral grounds. She refuses because it would go against her in nature. I love when he asks her why he can't come upstairs. She says, can't invite to win because I'm married. Because I know who I am. Because I know who I am. It's a fantastic reason. I love that it isn't righteous. I love that it isn't moral. It's just not her. Johnny comes back from Palermo, and this all leads directly to the final scene, which is set at the Castorini's dining table, and everything comes out. So Loretta's feelings for Ronnie and vice versa, the breakdown of her engagement to Johnny, which he ends up initiating, funnily enough, and Rose finally confronting Cosmo about his extramarital affair followed by his acquiescence and subsequent declaration of love. You've got this setup that all comes together in the most Italian of settings, which is around the dinner table with the entire family. And that even though this family's been going through challenging periods since the film began, it ends with unity, family unity. And embracing Johnny into their family as well, which he's going to be, he's going to be the brother-in-law. And a really important and very noticeable line that kind of sticks out near the end of the film is when Loretta says, I need my family around me right now. Because there's no acknowledgement of how much these people mean to one another, really. <laughs> I can't marry you. What? If I marry you, my mother will die. What the hell are you talking about? 
about? We're engaged. Loretta, what are you talking I'm about? I'm talking about a promise, okay? He proposed. Because my mother was dying, and now she's not. Oh, Johnny, you're 42 years old. She's still running your life. And you are a son who doesn't love his mother. You are a big liar, okay? Because I have a ring right here. Oh, I must ask for that back. Uh, I, uh, you know, all right, the engagement is off. In time, you will see that this is the best thing. In time, you'll drop dead, and I'll come to your funeral in a red dress. Loretta. What? Will you marry me? What? Where's the ring? By the end of the movie, we've kind of had this complete 180 with these characters. Loretta is happily in love and no longer settling. Ronnie's been redeemed for the slight he felt by taking his brother's fiance. He finally has his bride. Johnny is still part of a loving family that includes his mother and now his brother. And Cosmo and Rose have rekindled their romance, so everything that happened played its part in bringing them together like this. The good thing about this movie is none of it feels forced. No, I mean, you compare this with a movie like Prelude to a Kiss or Butcher's Wife. Like, they were kind of a lot of high-concept kind of movies coming out in the early 90s and the early 80s. And it's really nice, the, the subtlety with which this film's been made. Even the movies that have been made over the turn of the century as well, those movies that were made in the late 90s and the, the early 2000s, and some of them are really fun and really enjoyable, but Notting Hill, as engaging as it is has nothing on the script of Moonstruck. You have someone on that plane? Yeah, my fiancé. I put a curse on that plane. My sister is on that plane. I put a curse on that plane that it's gonna explode. I don't believe in curses. (laughs) Neither do I. Let's talk about superstition, because that plays a big part in this movie. Yes, the film is filled with philosophies. Some of them are, true romance is torture and best avoided. Don't be polite with family unless you mean to insult them. Getting married fast and easy will bring bad luck. Men cheat because they fear death. And like a little add-on to that last one, everything is temporary. Do you agree with the philosophies? Yes, they're all true. (laughs) Every single one of them. (laughs) Some of the superstitions that are present, obviously, Rosa's questioning why men seek younger women or other women. And Johnny tells the story of Adam and Eve. God took a rib from Adam and made Eve. Now maybe men chase women to get the rib back. I mean, I hear that story. I think, well, that's it. That's got to be it. That's such, I mean, it makes so much sense when he says it. Obviously, Loretta believes that her first marriage failed because her father didn't pay for the wedding. You know I was married and that my husband died, but what you don't know is I think he and I had bad luck. What do you mean? Well, we got married down at the city hall and I, I think it gave bad luck the whole marriage. You do see a reverence to bad luck in a scene with the dad, that opening scene, because he says to her... I won't come. you got to come. you got to give me away. I didn't give you away the first time. And I had bad luck. You know... Maybe if you, if you gave me away and I got married in a church, in a wedding dress, instead of down at the city hall with strangers standing outside the door, then maybe I wouldn't have had the bad luck I had. Maybe. For the dad to acknowledge that, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, this family really does have a very ingrained belief system. So maybe, maybe my nature does draw me to you. That don't mean I have to go with it. I can take hold of myself and I can say yes to some things and no to other things that are going to ruin everything. I can do that. I think Loretta and Ronnie will have a short-lived future together. Do you really? Yes. You think they're going to get divorced? Or dead or something, but, you know, it was like what we talked about in our Fatal Attraction episode, how that kind of passion always has a doomed future. It sort of has to, in order to be passion. Luke, I'm I'm glad you didn't make Moonstruck 2. <laughs> and then there is the other big kind of philosophical arc in the movie which is the wolf and the hand it's really the first big scene between ronnie and loretta where they discuss their thoughts and feelings toward life and love through a series of i guess what you could call euphemisms it echoes an earlier scene during which the shopkeeper and his wife are discussing how he looks at another woman i seen a wolf in everybody i ever met And I see a wolf in you. Loretta says that Ronnie is a wolf and he chewed off his own hand to get out of a relationship which he thought of as a trap. By doing this, she's turning that accident in which he lost his hand into a choice that he made rather than Johnny's fault. So now he's alone because he's scared that another relationship will bring back that wolf and he only has one hand left. That's why there's been no woman since that wrong woman, okay? 
You're scared to death of what the wolf will do if you try and make that mistake again. What are you doing? I'm telling you your life. Stop it. No. Well, what do you think the wolf is? It's a, it's a lot of things. It's carnality. It's how we look after ourselves. How we defend ourselves. It's desire. I, I think it is a sexual desire as well. The words from this movie that confound people online are when Nick Cage calls Loretta... A bride without a head. A wolf without a foot! So the idea is that she's kind of walking blindly into this marriage and in this life. There's a later moment where he says playing it safe is just about the most dangerous thing a woman like you could do. So the idea that Loretta has this fire burning inside of her and to make any decisions that would still that fire, dull that flame, would be disastrous for her. When she's talking about him and his foot, I mean, I've heard there's been Freudian talk about the film and that that represents his penis, but I all think that's a little outdated and a bit dull. I don't really know what she means when she says, a wolf without a foot. Neither do I. That is an interesting line. The first time she calls him a wolf is after they go up from the bakery. The second time that this reference comes up is after they've slept together. He now, instead of her describing him as a wolf, he describes himself as a wolf. I feel like this is in a carnal way and a more generally characteristic way as well. But he also says that doesn't make her a lamb. Loretta is a wolf as well. Yeah, uh, and, and I guess the connotation of a lamb is that, when it comes to a wolf, is that a lamb is helpless and it's present really only to be devoured. And Loretta is none of those things. They both have that fire in them that longs for something more, that longs for like true, crazy, adrenaline-pumping romance. There's another quote, and it kind of ties in with what you were saying, that maybe they do have a doomed romance. Loretta, I love you. Not, not like they told you love is. And I didn't know this either. But love don't make things nice. It ruins everything. It breaks your heart. It makes things a mess. We, we aren't here to make things perfect. Snowflakes are perfect. Stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves. And, and to break our hearts and love the wrong people and, and die. I mean that the storybooks are bullshit. Now I want you to come upstairs with me and, and get in my bed. Part of the reason for Cher's success as an actress in the 1980s was she took these roles that really downplayed her celebrity and instead in films like Silkwood and Moonstruck, and particularly in Mask, she played this very down-to-earth woman struggling with the complexities of life. What's good about this performance and Cher on screen generally is how unflashy she always is. Pauline Kael wrote about Cher as Loretta that she's devastatingly funny and sinuous and beautiful, and I thought that those were, were good descriptors for her in this movie. The Cher of ten years after Moonstruck, when she made the she released Believe and she released the Believe music video and she was so obviously affected by plastic surgery at that point that is not the share of Moonstruck so anybody who's equating the two it's like she was a different person in Moonstruck than she was 10 years later and she is today I mean she looks like she does today except her face moves and you can tell that God did it (laughs) and she's not wearing an outrageous white wig Silkwood She plays a lesbian. Yeah, but she almost disappears in that movie. I feel like she's really good in Silkwood, but it's not Cher's movie. It's Meryl Streep's movie. She made Silkwood, Mask, Suspect, The Witches of Eastwick, Moonstruck. That was pretty much it for the 80s. Uh, Her next one was Mermaid. She apparently spent a long time after winning the Oscar trying to find a vehicle for her. She was in close talks and she referenced it in an interview on Letterman that she was going to do a film called Fatal Beauty, which I think Whoopi Goldberg ended up being in. And then after Mermaids, which was 1990, she had a cameo in The Player, uh, which was a Robert Altman movie. And she had a cameo in Pret-a-Porte. And then she was in If These Walls Could Talk, Hi, my name is Cher. I'm a doctor and I do abortions and it's a woman's right to have an abortion. She also directed the segment that she was in. I directed this segment about having abortions and I cast myself as the doctor. 
That's the only thing she's directed. Then she was in Tea with Mussolini in 1999. She was in Burlesque. And then she was in Mamma Mia. You know something? In that light, with that expression on your face, you look about 25 years old. Romantic comedies had obviously been a big part of Hollywood, especially as far back as the 30s. The adult romantic comedies really began with Hepburn and Tracy in the 30s and 40s. They did those screwball comedies, but they also did, you know, Woman of the Year and, and romantic comedies that were actually about the romance and that were sophisticated and well-written. But then they took a dive in the 50s because they had Doris Day Rock Hudson films and they were charming, but they were very innocent and corny and a little bit like teenagery. And that's where Norman Jewison got his start as a director. But you did get great ones through the 50s, like Roman Holiday and just a couple of films that were of a higher class. Around the time, like Breakfast Activities might be the last great romantic comedy because then there's a gap of about 17, 16 years where through the 60s, there were no movies that you would say, okay, that's a true adult romantic comedy. I mean, there were films like Charade and The Apartment. They're great, but they're not what you call romance movies. You know, Charade has a whole sub-crime plot and The Apartment has a suicide attempt in it and is far more involved. But then apart from that, you had like a movie like Barefoot in the Park, which again feels sort of like, yeah, it's good, but it's not Hepburn Tracy. And then there were Elvis movies. That was in the 60s. But then in 1977, Annie Hall came out. And that was Woody Allen. He, he not only makes a profitable romantic comedy, he sets a new genre benchmark. So I think that when, when Annie Hall came out, it was like, okay, this is, this is the way to do a romantic comedy. I think two years later, he did Manhattan. So when you say a genre benchmark, you mean just a, an exemplary example of that genre? Is that what you're talking about? It's sort of like when Psycho came out and changed horror. I, I right. think that Annie Hall had that effect on the romantic comedy genre. There was a 17 year lull. And if you look at Annie Hall, the genre went through one more evolution. And that was with When Harry Met Sally in 1989, 12 years later. What When Harry Met Sally did was it took the overt intellectualism of Annie Hall out of it and made it a little bit more, without wanting to sound like I'm down, I'm putting it down because I love When Harry Met Sally, but it just took the things about Woody Allen that were a bit too idios idiosyncratic for a commercial audience, it took them out of it, but it was still like Annie Hall. And When Harry Met Sally is how romantic comedy movies are made today. Although When Harry Met Sally still probably feels more intelligent than most romantic comedies today. I'm only talking about what I would call good romantic comedies. Through the 80s, you had this huge number of teenage kind of romance films directed by John Hughes, and they were super successful. They were silly. It feels like there was a, a lot of movement away from romantic comedy as a self-sustaining genre. The thing that Moonstruck and Annie Hall have in common is that they're extremely literate and that there has been a great deal of attention and care paid to the screenplay. But then of course, once you had When Harry Met Sally, you got Pretty Woman and then you had, you know, romantic comedy became major box office and obviously the emergence of Sandra Bullock and Meg Ryan. Julia Roberts. When Harry Met Sally was written by Nora Ephron, who also wrote what film that Cher was in. Didn't know this until I was doing research for this podcast, but she wrote Silkwood. Oh, shit, I did know that. <laughs> Just you never put her together with that film. No, well, not anymore, because she is so intrinsically linked with that idea of the romantic comedy. Mm. Uh, she would obviously go on to write Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. Mm. Julie and Julia. When Harry Met Sally, that was hugely successful, $93 million. Pretty Woman the next year, $464 million. And that turned Julia Roberts into just a, an overnight success. Give me a ballpark figure. How much? Six full nights, days to 4000 Six nights at 300 is 1800 You want days too? 2000 3000 Done. Holy shit! <laughs> Sleepless in Seattle in 1993, the first pairing of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, $228 million. Four Weddings and a Funeral the next year, $246 million. So from that, you get all of these 
stars they are like star making vehicles because they're such popular movies so you've got as you said julia roberts you've got meg ryan you've got hugh grant on the male side of things notting hill was released the same weekend as the phantom menace which was the first star wars film in more than one and a half decades and notting hill went on to make 364 million dollars so i mean Mm. so the genre had by now become this money-making machine most of the films could be made for these small production budgets the biggest part of any of these productions was the fee for the stars what about johnny you're mad at him take it out on me take your revenge out on me leave nothing left for him to marry leave nothing but the skin over my bones all right all right anyway we've droned on enough so i reckon you should talk about the release and reception well, Moonstruck opened in limited release on December 16th, 1987, the same day as MGM's other, more expensive romantic comedy, Overboard, before going wide a month later. It was a second strong dose of share for audiences that year after the celebrated release of The Witches of Eastwick six months earlier. Moonstruck debuted at 16th on the US box office in its opening week, and that's on limited release, but it shot up to number three upon wide release, then remained in the top 10 for 20 consecutive weeks. Word of mouth and critical acclaim turned Moonstruck into an unexpected hit, with a gross of over $85 million. It became the 8th highest grossing film of 1988, and the biggest earner for MGM. Overboard finished in 65th place. Roger Ebert called it the best comedy in a long time. While conceding that the film worked as a madcap ethnic comedy, he also noted a certain bittersweet yearning that comes across as ineffably romantic. Pauline Kael wrote, Moonstruck isn't heartfelt. It's an honest contrivance. The mockery is a giddy homage to our desire for grand passion. With its special lushness, it's a rose-tinted black comedy. The Washington Post called it a joyous love story. Of the principal actors, he said, they're an irresistibly offbeat couple. Cage playing on the edge where he likes it. Cher creating a fairy tale realist, captivating yet cautious. Elvis Mitchell of the New York Times liked the film but noted, the process whereby Loretta and Ronnie fall in love is less appealing than the large family drama unfolding around the Castorini's kitchen table. Moonstruck was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, and it won three. Cher for Best Actress, Olympia Dukakis for Best Supporting, and John Shanley for Best Original Screenplay. In 2008, AFI ranked Moonstruck as the eighth best romantic comedy of all time. Mm. Eighth best. I'm surprised that Overboard wasn't uh, more successful when I was growing up. It just always seemed to be on TV. It's a great movie. Great fun. It bombed when it came out, but it's well regarded now. And it even got a remake a couple years ago that nobody saw. No, I never saw it. Was Goldie Horn in it? No, no. It had Anna Faris in it. Oh, gosh. And they reversed the roles. So I think it's the man that has amnesia because I guess they thought that was progressive. You know, Anna Faris is kind of a fun actress. No. Yeah. (laughs) We'll leave that there. So, you ready for a quiz? Yes. I'll start if you want. Okay. Which film did Cher, by her own admission, most want to do after Moonstruck? Was it a movie she was in? Did it get made? Yes. With somebody else? (laughs) She-Devil. Oh, I yearn. I yearn to make that movie. What, did she want to be Mary Fisher? Yeah, she wanted to be Mary Fisher. Hi, my name is Mary Fisher and I live by a palace in the sea. (laughs) Oh, that's good. I'm going to give you half a point just for that. (laughs) (laughs) Who presented John Patrick Shanley with his Oscar for Best Original Screenplay? Clint Eastwood? No, it was Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. And the winner is... John Patrick Shanley. The Moonstruck. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody who ever punched or kissed me in my life. And everybody who I ever punched or kissed. Let's stay on that theme. Name all three major national awards that John Patrick Shanley has won during his career. He's won an Oscar, Mm -hmm. a Tony, Mm -hmm. and a Golden Globe. No. He's won an Oscar for Moonstruck, a Tony for... Doubt and the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for Doubt. How much older is Cher to Nicolas Cage? I think Cher is 20 years older. 18. When they made the movie, Cher was 41 and he was 23. Yeah. 
she had fought for him and apparently they got along, like you said, but still, I just think that you never think of the age difference when you watch Moonstruck and yet it's 20 years practically. I heard that she found him, don't want to use the word difficult to work with, but she said that he was a a strange kind of person to work with. Cher told Norman Jewison before they started, I'm difficult, I'm very difficult. Cher said that about herself. She is the common denominator of all of the stories from all of the sets. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Vincent Gardenia, who played Cosmo Castorini, was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in 1973's Bang the Drum Slowly, which Moonstruck castmate also appeared in that film. Olympia Dukakis. It was Danny Aiello. No, it was Olympia Dukakis. You sounded so sure of it. I know, it was good, wasn't it? If you'd got it right, I would have thought you'd done your research on that one. Has anyone got anything right? Well, I said 20 years and it was 18, so I feel like that was close enough. And I got two out of three of the one you said, so that's close enough. Oh, what? That's not, but yours is fine. <laughs> you were two years off. So two out of three is 67%. And I said 20 years and it was 18, so that's actually 90%. Oh, go blow one out into a sock, Damien. Oh, Luke. <laughs> Wow. I kind of caught myself off guard there. <laughs> um, okay, so um, what is Cher's real name? Sherilyn Sarkeesian. Oh, f- you're such a fag. I, I, as if that is like the easiest question you could ask me. I would have no idea, and I don't know what Madonna's real name is either. Um, Madonna Chikatilo, I'm going to say. Ciccone. Ciccone. Oh, see, I kind of, there was somewhere <laughs> the ghost of it was in my head. Okay, so I won. I have two more questions. Uh, one of them was uh, Cher had previously auditioned for a Mike Nichols film before Silkwood, but been turned down a role that eventually went to Stockard Channing. What was that film? I had never really heard of this movie. It's called The Fortune. It starred Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty in 1975. What? That sounds like one we should seek yeah. out. And uh, here's one for you. Which superhero role has Cher apparently twice come close to playing? The, the poison lady that Scarlett Johansson plays. No, in fact, and I'm not sure how much I believe this, but Catwoman, first in Tim Burton's Batman Returns and more recently in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, although she apparently denied the latter rumours. She was going to play an older version of Anne Hathaway's character. I don't believe either of them. There's no way Cher would survive the Batman Returns set. Can you imagine trying to vacuum pack Cher into that fucking cat suit? She would last two days. (laughs) You got a love bite on your neck. He's coming back this morning. What's the matter with you? Your life's going down the toilet. Cover up that damn thing. Come on, put some makeup on. All right. Okay, give us your rating. 4.5 out of 5, (laughs) to be exact. I think probably uh, the test of a great film is that as you age, it kind of it gets better. It's like a fine wine. And I can honestly say that's true of Moonstruck. I'm with you. I give it four and a half out of five. I just feel like everything hits the right note with Moonstruck. I am Moonstruck by Moonstruck, you could say. And uh, that's the end of our episode. So, Luke, why don't you tell us what we'll be talking about next time? Brian Gibson's 1996 courtroom thriller, The Jura. Yeah, I don't think so Starring the inimitable Demi Moore and Alec Baldwin (laughs) With an early appearance from Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Anne Hesch (laughs) If you do that, we're doing breakdown Damien has some very decided ideas about Demi Moore and her on-screen presence and social (laughs) impact And I'm sure he can't wait to share those thoughts with you Where the fuck did you pull the Jura from? I clicked on the link to the movie I've actually picked and then it had a list of movies and I thought it would be really funny to say that one. I'm a bit scared to announce this movie, but I've kind of picked it for you and for me because we love it. Brian De Palma's film Carrie, 1976. Oh, that's great. This is my favourite horror movie. So, pressure's on, Damien. One of the most artistic horror movies ever made. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you all. That's amore. Bells will ring. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. And you sing Vita Bella. Vita Bella. Vita Bella. Hearts will play. Like a gay tarantella. Lucky fella. When the stars make it through just like pasta fuzzle. That's so
se muore When you dance down the street with the club at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, Signore. Excuse me, but you see back in old Napoli. That's so 